Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So I don't know if we were actually recording part of our conversation. I think we talked last week. Um, so I may have mentioned this while we were recording um, or, or after, but we were talking about this idea of oneness. And I think I've begun to ponder this and, and sort of get stuck here. But this idea of how are we as the church ever to be one when I think about the vast landscape of, uh, of faith traditions that we have today. And I think yeah, I did not grow up Catholic. I did not grow up in a thick liturgical tradition, but I, I can't help get this image out of my mind of, wow, in, in several of these, so Catholicism is definitely one, but, but other denominations as well. If you attend that service or mass here in the U.S., and you travel abroad and you attend it somewhere else, it's actually going to look, with the exception of language, it's going to look probably identical. And there's just something beautiful about that. That tradition is the same wherever you go. And and I can't help us but see, man, that isn't isn't that oneness? Isn't isn't that a, a significant aspect of what we're doing with our bodies? Um, so I'm just I'm I don't know. I'm curious your thoughts on. I, I, I sort of have this splinter in my mind here of how do we be one as the church? if we're always practicing different things and, and our faith traditions look so vastly different. Uh, I don't know. How, how do I, how do I understand this, the splinter I have? Well, it's uh, it may be uh, larger than you imagine. So I, I don't necessarily know all the ways we can address it, but it's worth, it's worth talking about because I too would say given, um, well, I guess I've been a believer now for, 40 plus years, uh, 50, is I've never given much thought to Jesus' high prayer, uh, high priestly prayer. And so most of us are familiar with it, but it's first, it's worth at least uh, reciting a little bit of it, where Jesus said, uh, Father, I pray that they, and he, therefore he's praying for us. He's praying, praying for you, listener. He's praying for me, Pat, praying for Pat, praying for Kathy. And he says, uh, I pray they may be one as you and I, Father, are one. As you and I, Father, are one, that the world may believe that you sent me. And so I think I've kind of loped through life thinking, yes, you're one. Uh, of course, uh, right. your church is one, 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 one. And, um, but uh, it, lately, I've been troubled by the same question that, um, uh, I gotta say it bluntly, we're not. Especially in, and we'll just probably we'll make it easier for us here, the uh, what's called the Western segment of the church, and also that Western segment of the church, the church is primarily of Europe and the United States, 
who would then take in their understanding of the gospel and spread it far and wide. And uh, that particular tradition or brand of Christianity, if you want to call it that, I know it's a rather inelegant term, but is not the same as well over two-thirds of the worldwide church. That simply has to be said. My, my mind starts to wander towards a couple ideas when you say that. One is, sure, but we're, we're all one when it comes to the heart and sentiment towards Christ. And so for that, we're one. But my stumbling block there comes to some of, of probably my my anti-tradition sentiments growing up, which is like, oh yeah, but the the real heart is in the more of the evangelical camp today. You know, we've we've rediscovered the real heart for God, and so there's now sort of this like genuine the genuine faith is more in the the modern Western church. Yeah, and then I think about um, you know the, sort of that anti-tradition traditional sentiment of uh, we don't worship these these silly ritualistic style traditions or whatever we we just care about the heart but that just that just starts to fall apart when you understand the embodiment of faith and I think that's where things maybe have come begun to unravel for me is when I think about the embodiment of our faith in our in our traditions and what we do with our bodies that's the that's maybe a gap there that's a good uh, good way to start so let's uh let's let's just touch on a few things and you know again our our three listeners can also ponder these during the advent season advent is a good time to think about this by the way because it is supposed to be a season of uh, preparation and penitence um, and so right there i would i would dare say pat that uh the majority of uh particularly Protestant evangelical churches uh, don't even practice that. And you can see it, you can hear it, for example, in the music, if it's upbeat, you know, in most of the world, the one church is somber during this time. Second, it's supposed to be a time where uh, preparation, preparation for what? The Christmas season. Yeah. Yeah. The word Advent means coming, but, um, you know, had we never fallen, uh, we would still have a uh, this time of preparation because uh, Jesus would be coming to marry us. Now, right there, you're going to set off the yeah, 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 and a whole lot of uh, my, my evangelical friends are going to go, what? Right. And so when we talk about oneness, um, it's, uh, and then, and then the, the irony is, because one of the best things about the uh, evangelical tra- uh, tradition is the desire to reach the world to see the world come to know jesus and jesus says well if you're one as father and i are one that the world may believe so we i think in our lack of oneness we're undermining the very thing we want to do so i want to start with we've got to get clear on one thing I'll give you an example, because when I said uh, we're simply not one, a lot of people go, well, that's judgmental. Sure. 
Yeah. Uh, which is a classic Western thing. <laughs> and I say, yeah. No, actually, John Adams said it well. Facts are stubborn things. And the fact of the matter is the content in many churches in the Western world is radically different than the content of two-thirds of the worldwide church. The content. Here's what I mean by that. And the reason I use radical is the word radical means back to the original. Every church is genuine. So I never talk about, you know, hey, we're the more genuine. Mm. Well, heck, you know, an axe murderer is genuine. He, his heart is an axe murderer and he's acting that out. He's a genuine person. Uh, that's not a radical view of what humans are supposed to do. And so if we set aside the whole idea of being radical, but that does fit, by the way, in the Western world, where many have said the faith is primarily expressive individualism. Here's my take on the gospel. I dispense with tradition and creeds and smells and bells and robes and rituals. That's all boring. We got to do that again. I like being ex extemporaneous, so on and so forth. Um, that's they're genuine but is it is it back to the original and here's why i say that i think you can make a case that two-thirds over two-thirds of worldwide church tilt still takes jesus high priestly prayer seriously and you can see this in one of the earliest descriptions of the churches from irenaeus he was a bishop he was a bishop in france and uh so he wrote this uh, late in the 100s and it's worth, you can Google it, but I want, I want to highlight, he said, the church, though scattered throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, as they understood the ends of the earth, or any of the earth at that time, having received the faith from the apostles and their disciples, lives as if dwelling in a single house, believes as if having one soul and a single heart, preaches, teaches, and hands on this faith with a unanimous voice, as if possessing only one mouth. For though languages differ throughout the world, the content of the tradition is one and the same. He talks about this tradition in Germany and Iberia and uh, Celtic Ireland and the East and Egypt and Libya and Asia. The same one and the same way of salvation appears throughout the world. The content of the tradition is one and the same. And do we have, I mean, does he hint at what that content is? Or do we, do we have anything to note that? Oh, sure. You know, that's, that's what you said, first century. That's pretty, yeah. pretty close to the origin. Pretty close to the origin. And of course, the content would be what you do see in what's called thick liturgical churches worldwide. Worldwide, The flesh, I mean, the word became flesh. And so God is present throughout the universe. And he became flesh on earth. And that became what is called sacramentalism, that everything is sacred from soup to sandwiches to sex to the sacraments. And so Jesus is the real presence of Jesus in the bread and the wine. So the easiest way to distinguish these is go to a communion service 
And if they discard the leftovers, they are what's called the new evangelical type. You just throw away what's left over. Whereas in any church that is sacramental, the content of the tradition is these churches for worldwide would be horrified Did you take the bread and the wine and just toss the leftovers. And so the content of the tradition centered around the word became flesh and all the ways that is fleshed out in your body. And so there were traditions of bodily postures to conform your body. Then your mind sort of catches up. That would include kneeling, standing, reciting, creeds, prayers, reciting word for word, not coming up with your own spin on it. Um, uh, Postures of your body during Advent and Lent that would be more one of uh, sobriety. And so you would have some more subdued music. You would have in the recessional, rather than saying, thanks be to God, hallelujah, hallelujah, the church goes, thanks be to God. There's no hallelujahs. There's no, uh, um, that's often part of the phrase, but there's no ass kicking rock and roll Christmas hymns during um, Advent. <laughs> and yeah, I was in a church once the first Sunday in Lent, and the first song is this ass kicking rendition of Jesus Christ is risen today. And come on, everybody, clap, rock. That's genuine. That's not the content of tradition. That is an aberration. And no one felt it because they were being genuine. They weren't being radical. And so that it's, here's a distinction, Pat. In the West, we tend to view these as, uh, I call it, it's sort of the golden corral view of church. Yeah. Now, I, I've never been to a golden corral, by the way. It does not appeal to me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, here's some chicken. It's only been laying out here since two this afternoon, but there you go. <laughs> or CC's Pizza, if you want to call that. If you, But the fact is... It's, I used to love CC's loved, Pizza. Yeah, yeah. I know oh, why, man. too. Cheap. <laughs> and uh, so let's stick with CC's because it's cheap pizza. But what it does is when churches are that way, they cheapen the content of the gospel because I've I've been in places where it is viewed as I'm at a buffet here. So a little from Sacramento, a little from this, a little from that. We we, we take it into our little kitchen, cook up our own service, and we call it genuine. And what they don't hear is these, these are mutually exclusive views. You can't believe that Jesus... The word became flesh and it's best fleshed out in your body and then turn around and also adopt practices that are newer that give no thought to your body at all or have an exuberance, for example, in the uh, Advent season that trains your body, as uh, Flannery Connor said, in the new heresy. And she felt the new heresy, if you're not familiar with Flannery Connor, Google her. But she said the new heresy in the Western church is everything has to be upbeat and positive. Hmm. That's not just style, Pat. That's substance. Yeah. And uh, and so your question is a good one to in this regard. 
And this is why I hadn't given it much thought until a couple of years ago. Jesus prays that we may be one. Why is that important, that word may? It implies the possibility of us not being one. That's right. Listen, if it's, a, if it's, if it's like a lot of people, my, my friends think, oh, of course the church is one. Well, if the church is one, why would Jesus pray that we may be one? Because as you just rightly noted, we may not be. It's worth, if anybody wants to explore this a bit more, um, Ross Duthat, the New York Times columnist, active, uh, active Christian, by the way, wrote a great little book uh, about, in this, uh, X amount of years ago called A Nation of Heretics. Hmm. And he said... Uh, the United States primarily, supposedly a Christian country, is actually a nation of heretics. And uh, if you know anything about the word heresy, before the Enlightenment, a heretic was someone who made their own decisions regarding what the Bible says and what is the gospel and what is discipleship. That's why. So go ahead. Well, that just so so that that aligns very much with expressive individualism. Yeah, like I I I see that connection. I think if I am in the kind of expressive individual camp, um, you know, I I, I think there's there's a a righteousness or a, a pursuit of righteousness there, which is like what I. I understand the true faith. So a bit of a blindness. Right? I alone understand the true faith because I am not in line with either existing traditional, you know, more, more thicker traditional churches or even mm-hmm. new. You know, I'm not even going to attend church anymore because they all get it wrong. Maybe yeah. that's, uh, yeah, it could be a number of beliefs. could be super hard on the conservative side and my church is just too liberal. It could be too hard on the liberal side and my church is, you know, they, they don't support uh, many, many liberal beliefs. And so I alone understand this faith. And so there's, a, there's almost like a, a, a blind, blind heresy. Yep. I'm, I'm afraid so. It's, uh, you know, one of my mentors was uh, Dallas Willard and, I remember when I had lunch with him in 1995 and my friend Tom was there and said, what do you make of the church in America? And he said, it's a lost cause. And he went back to eating his cheeseburger. <laughs> and uh, <No>. wow, <laughs> the rest of us just a very, very gentle, kind man. But, uh, you know, we sat there stunned. But he was, he was writing a book at that time where he makes this conclusion. He goes, the Western segment of the church today, the Western segment lives in a bubble of historical illusion about the meaning of discipleship and the gospel. That, my friend, is content. That's not just worship style. So we're a contemporary style, or right. you know, we offer this. It's uh, it's what so you know. You and I both waded through Charles Taylor's massive tome as. 
tome, um, A Secular Age. And he says, with enlightenment, especially in the 1700s, the Western world began to experience a nova effect. I think you're going to need to break that one down. I know that. that. <laughs> so, I mean, the first time I read that, I went, what's that? <clears throat> and basically, a nova is an exploding star. And his point was, you have, by and large, a church, worldwide church striving to be one with the content of the tradition striving and we could talk about all sorts of examples of there were schisms and then attempts to pull back together with the nova effect you have an exploding star of individual takes on what's true including the bible an explosion and so you go you go from you can almost make the case that up to that point uh, before luther you have two uh, segments of the church east and west but they both hold to the cardinal tenet. The word became flesh, and they have been recently attempting to come back together, be one because of a a small disagreement on the content of the tradition. That's why you can go to their services, East and West, and they're very similar. Um, but with uh, a Nova effect, we start to have hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of interpretations of what the Bible says, what church looks like, how we do discipleship. And this blows up oneness. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you say, well, the, the, the content of the tradition that, that, I mean, can that speak to anything else other than, almost the, the the rituals of the service like what do you, what do you... yeah they can't speak to anything else it's not yeah. it's not saying um he's not saying here uh, they're stylistically the same he's not saying that he's saying the content and that content um if we want to go deep into it includes you know this the uh, you see all the way through all the way through c.s lewis even harkens back to it but God is an infinite sphere whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. Now that is a mind blower, but a center who is everywhere means he is everywhere present. And if he's present in the entirety of the universe, that's what's called sacramentalism. And from that have come sacraments. And sacraments are sacred. And if they're sacred, then a sacrament, for example, is baptism you just don't go to any old river and dunk and whoopee and but now we have all sorts of views on what is baptism and if it's sacrament is if the eucharist is the real presence of jesus then you have well over two-thirds of the worldwide church has the priest or officiant consumes any leftovers or they're put in a box in case someone wants to have last rites immediately before they pass away. But in a smaller part, mostly in the Western church, after that uh, big plate of little plastic cups is sent around with a wafer stuck on the bottom and grape juice on top, anything goes back into the back room, you turn it upside and down and pitch it in the trash can. 
and the the reason there are no leftovers or the reason that it's not pitched is because this is the real right. would you take part of your parents would you say well they're dead yeah well, toss them in the trash just chuck in the trash right the the belief that the eucharist is the true body and blood of christ living body too so even my little analogy with your parents doesn't work mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh living you're right and uh can you imagine the horror that Irenaeus when he would say you what even even by the way Pat the great tradition I mean you don't necessarily have to go to the cross for this but it's worth thinking about the great tradition is the bread and wine and all the richness through scripture now I understand that some will say yeah but we have alcoholics well as a matter of fact, guess what? They had alcoholics back then too. <laughs> so they would say, just just consume the body. Hmm. But instead, there's this um, there's a willingness to uh, over to toss over the content, overthrow. I mean, I just pitch or discard the content of the tradition to say, well, we do grape juice or X Y Z. And um, well, what you do is you you're thinning out the uh, the oneness because a, a great many the majority of the worldwide church would go well, there's another way to do that but of course we here in the states go i don't care i don't, well, I don't care what they do or it's just as we're just lying to it we don't even we hardly give it any thought it just doesn't we just don't think about it i think it connects pretty thoroughly to the Acts 2 church, the, the, that idea of, uh, I think you had a column about it one time, that we're, we're what, in Acts 4,000, <laughs> you know, whatever the, the chapter is. Um, <laughs> but th- that idea of, we just need to go back to the Acts 2 church. And I, I the historical, or the bubble of historical illusion, I think is how you quoted Willard there. Yeah, And yeah. that's, it's pretty eye-opening, particularly when it comes to the Eucharist, you know, and for any listeners, as someone who currently attends a non-denominational church in his, you know, I, I don't attend a Catholic church and in trying to preach, I, I attend a non-denominational church and I'm wrestling my way through some of these things. And, and one of those is, is the Eucharist and the history of the Eucharist. And there is, there is much earlier evidence. I was Googling this earlier of, um, of the Eucharist as a core fundamental belief of the early church. How, and, how do we escape that? <laughs> and the real presence of Christ. I think that's also real presence critical. It's not right. until the enlightenment of the Protestant Reformation that you begin to have aberrant views that he's not really present. Right, right. And so, you know, to their credit, those churches today here in many, some in the States, they say, be sure to check your heart and make sure you're right with God before you take this, which is exactly right, but they can't tell you why. Right. If it's just symbolic, then why is that important? That's right. That's right. And by the way, see, I, I watch you guys pitch this stuff, the leftovers, so check my heart for why. Because it's just if it's just symbolic, so see what we're left with is what's called pietism. And pietism is a disembodied view of holiness that would say well our hearts need to be right with god because that's most important to have our hearts right with god 
which I agree it is important to have your heart right with God. But in Judaism, your heart follows your body, your bodily habits. So if you haven't trained your body, like I think Lewis said, especially in children, train the little devils. Uh, if you don't train that, then the piety is to say, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. If you know somebody has something against you, don't take communion, don't bring your offering, and go make it right. Boy, we see that happen all the time today, don't we? <laughs> and you can see why also you have in these thicker liturgical, they encourage, they have a confession on Saturday night before you go to Mass. Because if you're not right, and I, I dare say I can't remember when I've ever heard this in a typical Western church, if you don't, it can make you sick, physically sick, or it can kill you if you're not right with God. It can make you physically sick. Now, that's not plausible to the average Western Christian. That is implausible. As Augustine said, if it's not plausible, it's not believable. Yeah. And so you can read, and so what happens is you, what's called, you elid these passages in the Bible. I mean, you kind of skip over them when Paul writes to the Corinthians says, you know, because you are so immoral, um, some of you today in taking and butchering the Eucharist, uh, some of you are ill and some of you have passed away. When's the last time you ever heard someone preach on that? If we want to go back to the Acts 2 or Acts 28 <laughs> church, there she blows. <laughs> So I think in closing, Pet, the reason we're touching on this, dear listeners, um, is that the word Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, meaning coming, and Advent is a season of preparing for the coming of the Lord at Christmas, just like Lent's a season for these two high seasons of the church, uh, Easter and Christmas. But preparing always involves repenting. And repenting means that's most of us know it's turning around it's repudiating i was wrong i was wrong on that and i don't first of all so pat it's just it's kind of a double bind is if the if if people like philip jenkins who say the western segment of the church is an aberration it's not necessarily the norm within the Christian tradition, still that's the authentic core. And he says, now let's just say he's right. Then one third of the worldwide church would need to repent and come to its senses and return to the great content of the tradition so the church may be one. But the double bind is, but you'd have to have an Advent season of sobriety that urges reflection and contemplation and confession so that you repent. How's that going to happen if you don't do that? Don't tell me, well, God can do anything. No, he can't. He can't lie. And why also would God say, listen, I'm going to 
against your will, make you repent. Hmm. So it's a challenge. And, uh, uh, you know, at the very least, if we began to practice Advent, as two-thirds of the worldwide church at least practices it, I'm not saying they pull it off perfectly, and I'm not saying they're uniformly consistent, but according to the content of the tradition of the worldwide church, you'd stand a better chance for people to be at least wrestling as you and I are. Because how in heaven's name is a, church, is a church ever going to be one? Because Jesus said, I pray that they, Pat and Mike and Kathy and Maddie would be part of the worldwide, that church would be one that the world may believe. As you and I are one. God the Father and God the Son are not one on just style points. They do this, they like to go fishing, they like to do this, they like this kind of music. They're one in the content of who they are, the nature of who we are. The worldwide church right now is not one in the nature of what it believes, particularly in the Western segment, that believes thousands of different things, individualized takes on discipleship in the gospel. And only a season like Lent or Advent not only, but those seasons promote a, a sobriety where people to perhaps come to their senses and go, I was wrong. 